This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by New Left Review. New Left Review is a bi-monthly journal of ideas covering world politics, the global economy, social movements, theory, history, and culture. In the latest issue, Perry Anderson reflects on two historic losses for the left, Mike Davis and Tom Nairn, analyzing the relationship between their work. Andre Singer assesses the prospects for the third Lula administration in Brazil. Cecilia Recap asks whether digital monopolies have altered the contours of capitalism itself. And Matthew Karp reflects on class dealignment in American politics. Subscriptions start at only $49 per year, which gets you six issues plus access to the full NLR archive dating back to 1960. Featuring landmark texts by Theodore Adorno, John Paul Sartre, Frederick Jameson, and Nancy Fraser, among many others. Please subscribe to New Left Review. It's one of my favorite publications. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second of my two-part interview with anthropologist Nadia Abu El Haj on her book Combat Trauma: Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9/11 America. Abu El Haj identifies the barely or rarely visible ideological foundation of the war on terror and of the new American militarism more generally. Americans don't pay much attention to our country's constant overseas wars, much less actively organized to stop them, because the figure of the traumatized American soldier and the injunction that us ordinary civilians support our troops has become the key way in which Americans see and interpret the permanent armed conflicts that characterize our crisis-ridden empire. In dominant American culture, Abu al-Hajj argues, the traumatized American soldier has become the primary and really in many ways the only true victim of war. In part one of our interview, which you should probably listen to first if you haven't already, but you don't have to, we discuss how anti-war veterans and psychiatrists during the Vietnam War era developed an understanding that U.S. troops were traumatized by perpetrating atrocities and other forms of violence against Vietnamese people something they called post-Vietnam syndrome. We then followed that story through the rise of the conservative movement and Ronald Reagan, which ushered in a militarist politics that redefined post-Vietnam syndrome as Vietnam syndrome, which did not carry post-Vietnam syndrome's old meaning of harm caused to American troops by participating in atrocities and a murderously imperialist war. Rather, In the new conservative formulation, it referred to Americans' dangerously dovish post-Vietnam opposition to U.S. wars abroad. Meanwhile, the feminist anti-rape and anti-incest movement and the conservative victims of crime movement redefined and made salient the figure of the blameless victim. This is also a history of medicine and science. We traced the development of the fields of psychiatry and psychology, which moved away from psychodynamic therapies to a biomedical model, with ongoing revisions to the DSM and its definitions of PTSD increasingly defining the traumatized subject as the victim of a discrete traumatic incident that happened to them, not a condition afflicting someone who had done something bad to others. 
We finished part one of the interview by discussing how these new understandings of and treatments for PTSD were deployed and then modified as the war on terror was launched and then ground on over time as a metastasizing set of quagmires and soldiers reported being traumatized by what they had done. Over time, clinicians reevaluated their approach and the notion that soldiers were traumatized by acts they had committed reemerged this time in the guise of what's called moral injury. But the political anti-imperialist critique that had once animated post-Vietnam syndrome was nowhere to be found. In this new framework, soldiers were not traumatized by acts of immoral imperialist violence they had committed. Instead, American troops were in possession of a high-level moral sensibility and were traumatized because they had encountered the necessary and ultimately moral ugliness of having to kill in a just war or because they were just doing their job. In this second part of the interview, which is really good, Abu al-Hajj and I pick up where we left off, discussing how that idea of moral injury frames the U.S. troop as a liberal subject who is traumatized by his encounter with an illiberal other, or, in the language of American Christianity, evil forces in the world. We then discuss the culture of American militarism more generally, and how American civilians figured as innocent and naive to those evils of the world that soldiers confront on our behalf are enjoined to thank our troops, valorized as super-citizens, for their service. And we're also called upon to defer to those troops' accounts of war, because troops' traumatized positionality means that they alone can truly understand and thus speak to the reality of war. This, Abu al-Hajj shows, has become a, or perhaps the, key tool in making the American people quiescent sub-citizens who will not challenge this new American militarism that has accompanied the war on terror. We end this episode by discussing how soldiers, and really all sorts of Americans, are increasingly turning to the grammar of identity politics and speaking in terms of victimized grievance. A politics of resentment that is pervasive across the Trumpian right in general, and in particular in the figure of the embattled cop, holding his thin blue line against evil on behalf of ungrateful and naive American civilians. Before we get rolling, this podcast is supported by book advertisements, but much more so by listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. So first, Thank you to everyone who already contributes. You make it possible for us to put out every episode of The Dig with no paywall so that everyone can listen regardless of their ability to pay. But for all those of you listening right now, you listeners who regularly turn to The Dig for in-depth analysis of everything, everywhere, throughout all time, but who haven't donated yet, please, if you can afford to contribute, do so now. If you can afford five bucks a month and love this podcast, please contribute and be a part of making this podcast sustainable over the long term. A contribution of any amount at all gets your excellent weekly newsletter emailed directly to your inbox. A contribution of at least $10 a month, and we'll send you a book or books, or a dig tote bag or dig mug. Thank you. Please contribute what you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. You can also read our newsletters and check out our vast archives of episodes on absolutely everything at thedigradio.com. Okay, 
Here's the last of my two-part interview with Nadia Abulhaj, a professor of anthropology at Barnard College in Columbia University and co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies. She's the author of Facts on the Ground, Archaeological Practice and Territorial Self-Fashioning in Israeli Society, The Genealogical Science, The Search for Jewish Origins and the Politics of Epistemology, and the book we're discussing today, Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America. You write, quote, the consequences of lawful killing are at the center of explorations of moral injury in the era of the anti-terror state. And those effects of killing are framed by radically different assumptions about the U.S. military and its conduct of war than the ones that motivated Vietnam era psychiatrists. The all volunteer force is described by many not only as a thoroughly professional military, but also as a moral institution. You continue, quote, the psychiatric risks soldiers face in this view are born of contradictions that emerge between this intensely moral and ethical code of conduct that has been drilled into soldiers by the military and the very different realities they encounter on the actual battlefields. That is, when confronting enemies not bound by any moral or legal codes at all. And the dissonance can have a lasting psychosocial spiritual impact. This is a really fascinating and key point here. What What is this difference between the Vietnam-era notion that a soldier suffers trauma because of an immoral act that the soldier has committed compared to this newer idea that U.S. troops suffer a moral injury because they are highly moral subjects confronting a profoundly immoral enemy? The distinction is really key, and it's key to sort of the entire framing of understanding the trauma of war. So again, during the American war in Vietnam, when the notion of trauma as induced by acts of perpetration, again, the language was one of perpetration and atrocity, right? There was an understanding of not just the acts that individual soldiers engaged in as moral transgressions, but also of the U.S. military creating standard operating procedures that inevitably led to atrocities and war crimes. Things such as body counts that had to be submitted each day, free fire zones, et cetera. By the sort of turn of the new millennium, when the U.S. goes back into its first long full-scale war since the War of Vietnam, the military, again, it's a professional military. It's understood to operate by codes of conduct and according to international law. And that part of basic training or cardinal to basic training is building that moral, both the rules and a kind of moral compass into the soldiers. So they know what is and what is not acceptable on the battlefields. They know the distinction between a war crime and a legitimate operation, etc. This is a very different image of basic training than the one we see in, say, Full Metal Jacket. Yes. When the psychiatrists and psychologists talk about basic training, they certainly don't go into the side of it that's very brutalizing. You have to break down the individual and remake them as a soldier. And cardinal to that process is 
a form of brutalization, you know, instead of saying, yes, sir, you say kill, all these other stories that people tell. But focusing on the question of the rules of engagement and the U.S. military as one that both takes those seriously and abides by the laws of war, then one ends up with a very different understanding of what moral injury, as it's now called, is, which is if soldiers upon coming back from Vietnam were narrating the kinds of trauma they experienced as a result of having committed atrocities, in other words, those are supposed to be exceptions to the rule, even if the veterans themselves were arguing they were not exceptional acts in the context of the war in Vietnam. What's being argued today, and a lot of this conversation began among psychologists in the VA, is that killing, that killing is what soldiers are trained to do, and yet it is an act that can injure them nevertheless in the sense of a moral injury. So the conversation is much more, what does it mean to be injured by doing your job, not by violating codes of conduct in the theater of war, right? So then the question becomes, how does one understand that killing? So on the one hand, there is certainly an understanding that killing in and of itself for many human beings does violate some moral code. And the argument tends to be because we are all raised with the ethic of thou shalt not kill, right? As if that is a, an inherent Christian ethic, which of course ignores the long history of just wars. Or as if the United States is a country where people don't kill each other. All the time. Absolutely. But again, I guess the argument would be, but you're violating some ethic that is taken to be somehow. I mean, it's talked about as if it's universal, but it tends to get very quickly rolled into a Christian ethic of thou shalt not kill. But the other piece is that one cannot follow these rules of war and these standard operating procedures in the context of a war basically a counterinsurgency war of guerrillas who do not themselves distinguish between civilians and militants. So think about the opening scene of American Sniper. So the opening scene is Bradley Cooper, who's the sniper on a rooftop, if I remember correctly. And he's looking through a scope at a woman in a full chador covering her. She is coming out with a child that she's holding hands with. And you can see what's, what Bradley Cooper is expressing is that, please don't, please don't. In other words, he assumes that she is about to pull out a bomb and throw it or give it to the child. And he's like struggling and struggling. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. And then, of course, she pulls it out. The child takes it and throws it. And, of course, then he kills them both, right? But the point is he doesn't want to transgress that. He does not want to kill this woman, let alone this child. But given this is how the militants operate, they have no choice. That you cannot live up to what are these moral codes because, quote unquote, they're using children, right, to fight, or, you know, women are hiding things under their clothes, et cetera, creates a very particular kind of contradiction. And one of the things that really came up at, at more than one conference I was at with psychologists is also a sense that, in fact, the international laws of war and the codes of conduct are themselves creating trauma because people are in situations where they have to do things that they can't do. They have to check or they could be subject to criminal or military prosecution. So they can't make the kinds of decisions they need to do because what's also hanging over their heads is the threat 
of criminal prosecution under laws of war. So that's a very different conversation. One is not actually, one is talking about moral transgression and being injured by it, right? Kind of spiritual injury, but not because what one did was immoral necessarily, right? But because one understands what one did as immoral, but it may well have been what you had to do in those circumstances. So it's a, it's a very relativist then conception of the moral, which was very different than a kind of critique of atrocity in Vietnam, where it wasn't, well, it wasn't an atrocity in that situation, even if your civilian quote unquote self upon return to the U.S. experiences it that way. It was an atrocity. It was a crime. This is much more focused. I mean, there are moments of war crimes, but this conversation is not about that. It's really focused on the person who is a moral person. You cannot suffer moral injury, as people say over and over again, if you do not, if you are not a moral person. It's the sign of a moral person, right? So you have to be a moral person to do it. So you perceive what you did as immoral, but in the moment and in the context of warfare, it's not necessarily immoral. It could be a necessity. Which is all really remarkable given that the likelihood of war crimes prosecution based on committing an atrocity is uh, pretty unlikely. It's even far less likely to be successful. I mean, just look at that wildly disturbing case of Edward Gallagher from a few years back. You know, I don't know that it's in any way an accurate account or how one could even know that one of the causes is frustration with the kind of codes of conduct and laws of war, but it's certainly not an uncommon conversation among, in particular, VA psychologists. It really seems to echo conversations around policing in the period after the Warren court, that basically, you know, police were being forced to fight crime with one hand tied behind their back. It's interesting as you say that because it also echoes, but in a very different way, the argument that the conservative movement in the Reagan administration made in the aftermath of the war in Vietnam, which was the U.S. military lost the war because their hands were tied behind their back by the anti-war movement. Here, I would say, right, it's by these kind of international laws of war and codes of conduct, except I would say it's not, the, the message is not the, the Reagan administration message, which is, so we should get rid of the laws of war. I mean, they're not saying that. These psychologists and psychiatrists are just saying, this is a phenomenon we're recognizing. But they're not saying, so we should get rid of the laws of war. This idea is caught up, you write, in, in a notion of the U.S. troop as a liberal subject confronting an illiberal other. And specifically writing about adaptive disclosure therapy, you say, quote, the very capacity to suffer trauma, in this instance as moral injury, emerges as evidence of the perpetrator's humanity, a point that echoes Talal Assad's argument about the liberal subject in war, whose very humanity manifests through the very capacity for guilt and suffering in the aftermath of having killed another human being, a capacity the terrorist presumably lacks. And this all sort of reminds me of the discourse around Obama, of a philosopher president and a philosopher commander in chief of sorts, depicted as anguishing, thinking long and hard, reasoning long and hard before signing off on a drone strike, the perhaps quintessential liberal executioner. But liberalism has, of course, long been deeply implicated in U.S. empire and in many forms of empire. How does this particular version 
of American militarist liberalism differ from its predecessors prior to the war on terror. You follow Andrew Bacevich in calling this, quote, the new American militarism. What what makes it new? And what does this new American militarism maybe say about American liberalism? Lawyers have become more and more integrated into military, not just planning, but literally at the level of operations. International humanitarian law and what it means to follow international humanitarian law has meant that lawyers are there at the ground level. Is this legal or not legal? What would make this legal? And a lot of this rotates around the question of calculated risk, right? One of the things in the Obama administration is they could carry out a drone strike if X number of civilians, only X number of civilians were killed. If the kill estimate was above a certain level, they had to consult, right? And in drone strikes in particular, it's absolutely integral, right? I mean, lawyers are there all the time. So the question is, what is the causal relationship between that and the quote you read um, where I talk about Talal Assad's work on the very capacity to suffer guilt is a sign of the liberal subject. I think it's complicated because my guess is it's also partly about a discourse of trauma at a certain moment. But Talal Assad's argument, I think, is a really important one, which is if you look at the international laws of war, right? So he's writing this in his book on suicide bombing. And he's really asking a series of questions, one of which is, why does suicide bombing precipitate the kind of horror that other forms of killing might not, dropping a massive bomb out of an airplane, right? And why has so much energy and thought and angst, in some sense, gone into trying to understand who is this terrorist, in particular the suicide bomber? Why does he do what he does? And he basically takes a a kind of route through just war theory and international human rights law. And what he shows, of course, is, as we know, under laws of war, it is not that killing civilians is wrong, right, or is illegal under all circumstances. It's a question of what is the intention? What is the goal of the military operation? And is it proportionate to the number of civilians killed? And what he also shows then, going through Michael Walzer's argument about just war, Walzer is trying to understand what can be done in an emergency situation, right? And what still distinguishes us from, quote unquote, them, is that the commander will try as long, you know, as hard and as long, and he'll say no, and he'll say no, and he'll say no, he can't cross the line until he finally does. But he will do it with such guilt that he won't do it again. And the presumption, again, is that the terrorist does not, does not experience guilt. And actually, this happened to me once when I was actually giving a talk about a book by Ari Shavit. Uh, it's a book called My Promised Land, where, again, he rehearses his own guilt about what happened in 1948, in particular, in one town and this massacre and the expulsion of Palestinians. But in the end, he says, you know, the massacre could have been avoided, but the expulsion could not. That was foundational to the state. And he feels guilty, but he will, quote unquote, stand by the damned because it's a choice between the Jewish state or a kind of moral purity, right? And so I ended up talking about this a little bit in the language of moral injury, that it echoed that language. And someone in the audience actually at the end stood up and said, asked me, but do Arabs experience moral injury? Can they experience moral injury? 
It was quite astonishing. I just kept pushing her until she actually came out and said what she wanted to say, which is the difference is you kill without guilt. You mentioned a few minutes back how this notion of Americans being morally opposed to killing, that it often slips into the language of Christian particularity. And in the book, you write a lot about how faith-based approaches to traumatize soldiers, both in terms of churches and military chaplains, the role that they're playing. And religious figures and groups, they're a longstanding part of military life. But that's been increasingly the case, you write, as services to vets and to soldiers have, have been privatized over the years. What role has has religion, particularly evangelical Christianity, played in redefining the figure of the traumatized soldier? And what does it mean for the concept of moral injury to be read through this theological lens, typically a Christian one, of good versus evil? Yeah, structurally, I mean, there have always been military chaplains. Structurally, as you say, this is part of welfare reform. So if we think veterans in particular— Right, starting with the retraction of welfare in the 80s and then through the Clinton administration and then the Bush administration, not only was a lot of care work in general, right, psychological services, housing, social work, outsourced to quote unquote charities or non governmental organizations, but they began to be under that category that a lot of that money in fact goes to Christian groups. So, what one sees, let me just focus on the veterans for what one sees in a lot of veteran reintegration care is it's a lot of groups, either churches or groups like Volunteers of America, which have strong Christian roots. I want to say before going, a lot of these are not evangelical. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's work across the Christian spectrum, including very heavily with Christian groups who see themselves as much more liberal and progressive. But what the talk of moral injury does, or as moral injury kind of reappears in this medical discourse, a lot of what clinicians are talking about is what they refer to as spiritual injury. Sometimes they even say sort of injury to the soul. And that opens this space for groups that are working with veterans and reintegration, and in particular with traumatized veterans, where a lot of the churches end up engaging. That for Christian communities, the question is, well, is that sort of what is a spiritual injury, right? Can we talk about a spiritual injury or the soul without talking about Christianity and theology, right? Is moral transgression actually, is this really about sin? And again, I want to say, even though these are Christian activists and or Christian-based groups and churches talking about sin, for the most part, again, it's, it's that you perceive you have sinned. They are not actually saying you have sinned, which is kind of an amazing relativism within a Christian ethic. And then the language of sin is also tethered to the language of radical evil, that what war is, is an encounter with radical evil. And that that also, you know, regardless of having sinned or not sinned, it's also having witnessed radical evil. There's a kind of profound injury to the soul. So the question then is, how does one move through this? So some people think you need to combine a sort of pastoral care with clinical care. Some people think the clinical fields, whether it's psychology or psychiatry, are not capable of dealing with what is a profoundly moral struggle, right? That they're technical fields and that the proper place is with religious institutions. So on the one hand, the conversation is this is not a particularly Christian thing. This is a religious thing. But if you really look carefully, it's a religious thing construed very much as Christian in that sense of faith. 
faith and sin and penance. So you have to move through the pain and recognize it for what it is and come to terms with the evil you have either confronted or done and then produce some kind of penance, which usually just is a form of reintegration into a community. And sometimes it's really not even penance, it's just rituals. How do you let go of the pain? So there are rituals where people carry a boulder through things so that you represent that boulder. It's the amount of pain you're carrying and you leave it in the center and you leave. So there's all this stuff also around ritual practices that are more communal, that are based in religious and understanding of religious ritual as a transformative moment, that kind of liminality where you leave who you were and try to come out the other side. But it's all framed, of course, within a conversation about sin and evil and a recuperation of the soul. One remarkable thing about this discussion we're having about basically how Christians justify American violence. I mean, what's remarkable is that such analyses are just not very common. One does not hear this in contrast to the loads and loads, probably libraries full of books on Islam justifying violence, Islam justifying jihadist terrorism. Right. Well, that's the thing about, I mean, again, it's this kind of thing. The reason soldiers suffer moral injury is because of their moral upbringing. You get it from your family, you get it from the church. And what keeps getting repeated is thou shalt not kill. But no, really, thou shalt not kill under certain circumstances. But wars against the heathens or against Muslims, for that matter, the Crusades were just wars, right? So the idea that war has not been a part of Christian projects and projects of the church is just factually wrong, right? Thou shalt not kill under certain circumstances, right? Thou shalt not kill certain people. But that doesn't capture, in fact, the much more fraught history of Christianity in relation to war. And the very concept of just war, people say, is like the secularized version of Christian just war theory. And right, as opposed to Islam, where widespread conception is that violence and jihad, which is understood as holy war, which Talal Assad's book on suicide bombing also takes that apart very carefully, that that is not what jihad means or has meant historically within the Islamic tradition, and that, in fact, it was not central. But anyway, but that that is the defining criteria of Islam. And that's the challenge. Something we've referenced a bunch in this interview, but haven't got into too deeply yet, but that's absolutely critical to your book, is that this entire edifice of deference towards troops is built upon this bifurcation of American citizenship, dividing Americans between us mere civilian citizens and those who are soldier super citizens, with the latter accorded the exclusive legitimate right to talk about matters of war and peace. You write, quote, if at the most basic level, a civilian is she who is not a combatant, that means something quite specific in the context of a state that for well over a century now has waged its wars on foreign soil. In the American vernacular, and quite specifically in conversations about the post-9-11 wars and the civil-military divide, the term civilian is widely used not with reference to a non-combatant in a war zone, but rather to describe an American who has never experienced war. What's more, this civilian is someone who can never truly know war. It's really something. How did civilian go from meaning a non-combatant in a war zone to, you know, a civilian being, say, 
a Vietnamese villager who was massacred by American troop to a non-combatant citizen back at home in the metropole of the empire that is waging these overseas wars. It's particularly interesting, I think, given that civilian control of the military is ostensibly the bedrock of democracies in general and American democracy in particular. So how did this bifurcated construction of the civilian citizen versus the soldier super citizen arise? And what are its implications for American democracy and specifically for any sort of possibility of contesting American empire from within domestic politics? The fact that this category, the civilian, and in particular when talking about these wars, tends to most often reference in everyday conversation those Americans who have not gone off to war and who do not know war and cannot know war is itself symptomatic of imperial privilege, right? The U.S. does not fight its wars on its own soil. It has not done so for well over a century or more, right? And so there's a whole imaginary of war in this country in which it is soldiers who experience and know war because they go way far away to fight them, and civilians who stay back home but are not at risk from those wars, right? So what does that mean? There's, there's so much public conversation and, in, and scholarship that has been concerned with the stereotype of the soldier, whether it's as, you know, the Rambo type figure or just this sort of sense of the soldier as a citizen that is not understood. But it really struck me that there, this figure of the civilian is a deeply stereotyped figure as well. Someone who there's a kind of innocence there. People talk about, you know, um, there's a quote from a psychologist at the, one of the VAs saying, when she's talking about moral injury, saying, you know, civilians, I'm paraphrasing, are really lucky because they, they remain innocent of the radical evil and naive about the radical evil that exists in the world. They haven't had to confront it the way their soldier compatriots have. The civilian, I think, isn't merely descriptive category, and the, the talk about the civil-military divide is not merely descriptive. It is true that only less than 1% of the American population serves in the military. It's a series of valuations and judgments in which the civilian herself ends up being stereotyped as someone who doesn't know war, can't know war, because you can only know it if you were there, um, is sort of selfish, you know, the, the constant accusation of you know, they were shopping at the mall while we were out at war. The image of the civilian who says, thank you for your service, but doesn't really mean it. The civilian who asks the soldier, well, did you kill anybody over there? All these questions are a kind of image of this kind of naive or disengaged civilian who is actually responsible for the wars because, quote unquote, we live in a democracy and it's a civilian controlled military. But who don't take responsibility and who have never had to bear any of the effects of it. So on the one hand, of course, that's true, right? That's the, that's the imperial privilege of fighting your wars so far away. But what I try to understand is what are the effects of this discourse that has also in some sense become a common sense. There's a civil military divide that is not just demographic, but it's it's about different moral worlds. It's about different cultural worlds. It's about a civilian population that cannot understand and does not know soldiers. 
and does not take responsibility, has, was not political during the war, et cetera, et cetera. Kept returning these same leaders who were conducting these wars back to the White House and to the Senate and Congress. But nobody says, okay, yes, the American public has that responsibility, but soldiers were also voting for these same politicians and sending them back to the White House and the Senate and Congress. And soldiers also believed in these wars, even if over time they became disillusioned, right? In other words, in contrast to Vietnam, there is not, there was not dissent within the ranks in any significant way in the active duty military. And there has not been a significant anti-war movement among veterans. There is one, but it's small. It's a small movement. Most of the turn against the war has been more like disenchantment or it didn't work out the way it was supposed to. I was lied to. But that's not a political critique. That's not a political critique on behalf of the American public. And it's not a political critique by soldiers and veterans either. A real contradiction here in the civil-military divide discourse is that the ostensible purpose of the U.S. military fighting all these forever wars is to protect the American people from violence. But that successfully achieved right. achieved state of safety then leads to a dangerous innocence, which maybe that has deeper roots in American history. Teddy Roosevelt's idea of the strenuous life comes to mind, this deep anxiety that, that success and dominance makes us soft. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it leads to two things. It leads to resentment. You know, I in one of the chapters of the book, I go into great detail about this conversation. Thank you for your service, right? And the question of what is the public's moral obligation to soldiers? And what really comes out by all these journalists and academics and some veterans and soldiers or ex-soldiers who talk about this is this sense of deep resentment of the quote-unquote civilian population because it doesn't suffer, because its life is so easy, because it doesn't know violence. And if you haven't been in war, you don't know war, which I, that is the, the fundamental premise of this argument, which is you were not there, you cannot judge. Now, on the one hand, you could say that's just saying I cannot judge you as an individual soldier. Although, let's just say, what can we not judge somebody for? A regular operation in which people were killed, committing a war crime. I mean, there's a slippery slope there. But even, but I think it operates at a level that is not just about I cannot judge you as an individual soldier. There's a way in which it becomes a profoundly silencing effect on the possibility of actually having a political argument about the wars. Were they legitimate? Were they legal? Were they just? Right? We haven't had those conversations. We've had the conversation that, yeah, the U.S. went into Iraq on a, on a lie. On a lie is not the problem. It was a war crime. If one thinks Russian invasion of Ukraine is a war crime, which under international law it is, insofar as Russia went into Ukraine on a pretext, so is Iraq. You cannot start a war on a pretext. Under international law, that is a war crime. There is no calling to account. Nobody has been called to account for having gone to war, right? Eh, we turned against it. Eh, whoops, it was a lie. Is not a political critique. And there's a complex way in which this discourse about the civil-military divide, the question of who is entitled to speak about it, the question of who really understands war, which is really only those who've been in the military and quote-unquote served, has this effect of silencing a political conversation. 
We can talk about our obligations to soldiers who went when, quote unquote, the rest of us, when we didn't, we wouldn't step up. But we can't, we can't seem to get beyond that conversation to actually talk about the wars themselves, what the U.S. has done, what the U.S. public may owe Iraq, Afghanistan, and the many other countries that have been destroyed by U.S. militarism. There's no talk about reparations. There's no talk about repair. There's no talk about war crimes except the occasional individual who commits it. And I think that that's wrapped up in this whole discourse of the civil-military divide and all the moral judgments that come with it, the obligations you need to listen without judgment, that the role of the civilian in talking to the soldier or the veteran is to listen. It's only to listen, right? It's not to ask the uncomfortable questions. But then what are the contexts in which one is allowed to actually have the argument? And, and are, is one really not entitled to have an argument if one, quote unquote, hasn't served, including with the soldier? Why can't one actually have an argument or a discussion? And obviously, this politics of troop veneration centered on this discourse of this massive civil military divide forecloses all sorts of anti-war politics. But it also forecloses a lot of other things. I think this idea that troops can only understand the realities of war just doesn't make that much sense, given that an American might come to no violence because they walked down the street or walked into a school or a Walmart. This is a profoundly violent country. And as I've discussed at length with with Pat Blanchfield, American militarism is deeply implicated in our domestic culture of rampant gun violence. But we can't examine that domestic gun culture beyond this kind of very problematically hemmed in debate around, you know, banning certain weapons that pit Democrats against Republicans. We can't really get to that if we can't take account of American militarism. And we can't do that with this idea that the troop is the only one who who really can can speak to American violence. Right. Look, one, post-Second World War, the vast majority of people who die in, in wars, something like 85% or north of it now, are civilians. And I here mean civilians in a war zone, not troops. So the reality is, if one comes to understand war entirely through the soldier or veteran's own experience and narrative of it, it is a very particular understanding of war. So not only war from the perspective of the combatant, not only war from the perspective of the U.S. combatant who is overseas, but it really elides, in fact, the vast majority of harm and injury produced in any war. And then the second piece is, again, all this talk about confronting radical evil and having, you know, sort of seeing or participating or seeing even witnessing mass destruction and the loss of life that is so traumatizing or morally injurious for many soldiers assumes two things. One, that A, that experience is not common for people who do not go to war, for Americans who do not go to war. And B, it also is sort of an argument that it's untranslatable, right? That you can't fully understand if you weren't there. I mean, this has echoes, of course, in Holocaust literature of, can you really describe in language kind of experiences of the extreme? But the difference is that the violence that the soldier encounters is not just negative, right? It's, it's also sort of sublime. The soldier might be traumatized, but he's heroic. 
he may have gone off to war naively thinking it would be an adventure and discovered it's much more complex and painful than that. There are lessons to be learned, but it's not the same kind of violence, even if it's violence he perpetrates, right? As is the violence of the murderer or the school shooter. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is My Country is the World, Stodden Lin's writings, speeches, and statements against the Vietnam War, edited by Luke Stewart. Stodden Lind was one of the principal activist intellectuals who made the radical argument that the U.S. intervention in Vietnam was illegal under domestic and international law. Lind did not just write about opposing the war. He was one of the chief proponents of direct action and civil disobedience to confront the war machine, from the university to the halls of power. As Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz remarks, this collection could not come at a more important moment. In the wake of Stalin Lin's death, documenting his tireless writing and speaking to end the cruel U.S. war of aggression against the Vietnamese people, an important intervention at this time of the United States' renewed warmongering in the South China Sea. My Country is the World out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You write, quote, Clinicians who have never served in the military are being told that their ability to provide successful treatment depends on their grasp of military culture. You continue, quote, Drawing on the grammar of identity politics, Warriors are depicted as living within a specific culture and having a distinct identity rooted in the individual's formation by and within military culture. And that sets them apart from American society as a whole, including, apparently, insofar as they abide by a heightened moral sensibility. And quote, In a moment of trauma's empire, this epistemology is harnessed to a form of citizenship modeled on the therapist's couch. Civilian citizens are called upon to attend to the individual suffering of the returning troops, to listen to their moral and psychological pain, all the while refraining from judgment. Was he involved in war crimes? Was the war just? Because they cannot know. And this, you write, is the sort of politicized identity that Wendy Brown has critiqued, whereby oppressed people seek recognition through securing the status of victim. Quote, Suffering emerges as the measure of social virtue, and good fortune, privilege as we might say today, as self-recriminating, as its own indictment in a culture of suffering. What should we make of this profound resonance between the dominant culture of American militarism that you're analyzing on, on the one hand, and in these cultural forms that are deemed typical among American liberals and also leftists? Identity politics has has one history, one that we've discussed multiple times on the show, dating back to the Combahee River Collective. But obviously, in recent years, it has come to mean a whole lot more than that. It's become the specter that haunts right-wing so-called anti-woke politics, and it's become a liberal politics, one that certainly seeps into the left, where positionality, particularly a traumatized positionality, is everything, something that, that Femi Taiwo 
has powerfully critiqued. But it's also, again, become fundamental to American culture as a whole, very much including military culture and then how American culture relates to the military. So Wendy Brown's argument in States of Injury, and in fact, she predicts that identity politics is going to land us in a form of politics that slides into the therapeutic. And precisely because it's not just that there is a politics organized around an identity, it's a politics organized on an injured identity, right? So the question is calling to account those who are presumably responsible for your injury structurally. She is critical of that politics, but not of its, as she says, these were emancipatory projects. It was a part of a struggle to have, to be included within the categories of the fully human. In her analysis, there's a self-undermining dynamic wherein it is not going to succeed at the emancipatory project it sort of is born of. Precisely because she's sympathetic to the emancipatory goals of those movements, she's, for that reason, concerned that this turn is actually going to undermine that emancipatory potential. It's going to be counterproductive. What I found from while I was doing research, which is both, you know, as you know, archival newspapers, but also talking to people and participating in workshops that train people who work with soldier with veterans, et cetera, et cetera, and talking to psychologists, uh, journalists, et cetera, is what when I kept hearing is a kind of repetition of that grammar. The soldier is a category of person that has a distinct experience that is different than anyone else, different than the non soldier in American society, its own culture, its own set of morals, its own world. And that is really central to the civil-military divide and the fact that most of you don't know us or anybody like us. It's not just that literally, it's a, it's a whole other world with a whole other set of values, right? Of course, the reality is identity politics was in fact very much uh, politics and is of the marginalized and of the victim, Right. So what one gets in a lot of this discourse is a replication of the grammar so that the soldier occupies the space as if he is a victim. There's rarely, people don't tend to, and soldiers and veterans themselves don't tend to call themselves victims, but there's a replication of the logic of the grammar. It's constituted by an identity and experience you don't have. It's constituted by an injury for which you are responsible. I'm going to be angry at you. Don't don't thank me for my service if you don't mean it. Don't ask me what I did over there, et cetera, et cetera. It replicates that logic. And one of the key pieces of that logic, of course, is that you can't know, it's an epistemological claim, right? You have to defer to my experience. So it's kind of torqued in a different direction, but the logic remains the same. But, you know, this resonates through kind of the white resentment politics of the Trump era and now post-Trump era. And in, in a lot of that white resentment politics, there is very much a rhetoric of victimhood, explicitly, unlike in the discourse around soldiers. But I think it's basically a political grammar that has deeply exceeded its origins at this point. Yeah, it, it brings to mind for, for me these recent cases of, of cops cl- falsely claiming they've overdosed on fentanyl after simply being in the same room as the drug, or the large numbers of CIA agents claiming that they're suffering from some sort of unexplained illness with the so-called Havana syndrome. I wonder if what we're seeing is something similar here, maybe even emanating from this culture 
of venerating the traumatized troops. Are agents of American violence now just across the board, subconsciously rushing to assume the identity of a traumatized subject? And if so, what might that be about? I, I definitely see the grammar replicating itself. I don't know where I would put the origin point in the soldiers, but I think this is sort of, in that sense, it's this wider uh, turn towards a kind of, you know, white nationalism, whether it's explicitly white nationalism or whether that's the undercurrent, a kind of whiteness undercurrent of the conservative movement at this point. But I do think the language of moral injury has begun to circulate much more broadly, including way outside even the question of perpetration. There was a lot of stuff on the moral injury of, of doctors and nurses, et cetera, during COVID, what it meant to be in a situation where you could not save so many people. But one place it does seem to be beginning to circulate is into the police, right? A similar kind of inversion of, again, the police are not claiming to be victims, but there is the claim of being injured by the work of perpetrating, although they wouldn't use the word perpetrating, violence, right? That certainly is starting. You see stuff about the stress, and you know, increasingly moral injury, sometimes trauma. But I think there's a crucial difference there, and it's the difference of how kind of liberals in the progressive movement respond. American troops, the response is support the troops no matter your position, political position on the war, and supporting the troops involves a kind of deference, right? The argument is not support institutional care for the troops. It's something about an intersubjective interpersonal relationship, which is thank you for your service. Even if you, I mean, I've seen people who are against the wars, thank someone for their service. I'm not thankful for service. If it was to go for a war that I thought was wrong, why would I thank you for your service? I and mean, we could have a conversation about the complexities of how you ended up doing this and why you joined the military, right? But I'm not gonna thank you for your service. Nobody in progressive and liberal circles would say you need to support the policeman, even if you don't support the project of policing. Right. That would be a ridiculous call. Nobody would do that. And in fact, on the basis demographically, there's a lot of overlap between the police and the military, class-wise. And a lot of cops are vets. And a lot of cops are vets. So you can't argue being a quote-unquote progressive on the left that it's a class draft and therefore, we still have to support the troops and then not support the policemen, right? That's not what's going on here. What's going on here, I think, is a kind of nationalist optics in which one's sense of obligation and more than that, one's attention is entirely domestic. So domestically, you can't ignore who the police are shooting. On an international scale, you can focus on soldiers and absolutely ignore who is at the receiving end of that violence because they're not part of your your kind of political optics they're outside the scene which is an entirely enclosed american or not entirely but largely enclosed american scene yeah i mean in in the absence of an anti-war movement the left you you write has only managed to mount serious attacks not always successful but but serious attacks on domestic injustices and this is particularly notable when it comes to the American state's domestic apparatuses of violent repression, like you're saying, policing and for a brief moment in the early Trump administration, border enforcement. They were the target of the sort of intense organization and protest that militarism abroad has never in the past two decades generated, except for, you know, minuscule anti 
Afghanistan war protests in 2001, and then large but very brief anti-war protests against the Iraq invasion. Why do you think that's the case? Why haven't those domestic to global dots been connected? And, And to be clear, movement leaders are often very internationalist, but why on the mass level has our government's violence only been thinkable and contestable within our borders and and briefly with Trump at at the border? First of all, it really does matter there's not a draft, right? I mean, in that sense, I am sympathetic with this talk of the civil-military divide as a, as a political problem in a different sense, which is the draft as it was carried out in Vietnam was not as equalizing as the political discourse around it would like to believe. Many people got deferments or got into, you know, cushier positions where they wouldn't really go to battle. It was still heavily reliant on poor and minority populations, et cetera, et cetera. But there was at least a risk that you could be pulled into this war, that it could actually affect your life. I think that might make you pay attention a little bit more. And I say this as someone who's, you know, been teaching at Columbia and Barnard the entire 20 years. And the the extraordinary way in which it really has not touched the lives of most of my students. I mean, now there are a lot of veterans on Columbia's campus. It's another story, but in general, it hasn't touched people's lives. So who was going to oppose the war? It was going to be liberals and progressives. Liberals really struggle with who am I defending on the other side? I mean, the figure of the Islamic terrorist, of jihad, right, as this kind of totally illiberal and dangerous subject, I think has made it really hard to articulate an anti-war politics. First of all, 9-11 happened. So many people, most of the population got on board with the uh, invasion of Afghanistan. And most of the population got on board initially with Iraq because of some crazy Propaganda, not just of mass, weapons of mass destruction, but that somehow Saddam Hussein was tied into Al Qaeda, which was a complete lie. Yeah, which is a really, a really, a really nutty lie. <laughs> right. If you know anything about that regime, it was a total. It was obviously a lie. So that these wars were started as just wars, and as people, I mean, un- understood as just wars. Right. There was no moment of saying, "Do we hold an entire population responsible for the work of Al Qaeda?" Was negotiation possible? By November 2001, the Taliban were ready to negotiate a ceasefire if they got amnesty. Cheney and Bush said, absolutely not. We haven't had those conversations. I think, you know, 9-11 set the tone for feeling like this was justified. And people may have gotten disillusioned over time for various reasons. The wars didn't go well. The goals kept shifting. Iraq was a lie. It became a fiasco, right? But I also think to be anti-war during the war in Vietnam, there was a sense in which there was a left that understood the Viet Cong as fighting an anti-colonial war of liberation. Yeah. And in these instances, there was a sense of these people really are dangerous. You know, we got to save Afghan women from the Taliban as if Afghan men were also not suffering. I mean, it's a kind of liberal feminism that some people are, that there's no possibility of resistance from within that we have to go and save. But because this figure of who who it was, whether it was the Taliban or whether it was the quote-unquote sectarianism in Iraq that was never understood as something, I mean, it's not that it didn't have any roots, but it was just a conflagration born of very bad American military policy um, and lack of political vision, et cetera, et cetera. They're all such despicable, quote-unquote, and unsympathetic and dangerous figures 
But I think there's a kind of, you know, backing off of the politics too. You know, so, and, and the more one backs off, the less one can take responsibility. Yes, ISIS, but where did ISIS come from? Yes, before the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but Al-Qaeda didn't, in Iraq didn't exist before the U.S. went into Iraq. But it's just that there wasn't a kind of political imagination, I think. If we're going to oppose the U.S. wars, who are we doing it in the name of? And I think that liberal struggle with, and really a kind of affective response, disgust at this figure of the Islamic fundamentalists with Muslim fundamentalists and the jihad, these so-called Muslim fundamentalists, was strong enough that it had an incredible silencing effect. And then one doesn't focus outwards, right? So it becomes much easier then to focus on political issues and struggles where you can see, oh, well, there's a side here I can believe in. And the humanity at some basic liberal level, the basic humanity of Iraqis and Afghans and Pakistanis and Somalis and Yemenis who've been caught in this vortex of violence, some more thoroughly than others, was just something that couldn't really emerge, right? Because it's, there was no political movement there to identify with. But in terms of why the U.S. left hasn't been more actively inter- internationalist, in terms of those on the left who do oppose the wars, U.S. militarism is as monstrous as ever, but the U.S. left doesn't have enemy combatants that they're going to directly express solidarity, outright solidarity with. So instead of the NLF or the, the FMLN, we have Saddam Hussein and the Taliban. And so the U.S. violence is just as objectionable and wrong. But the entire kind of world systemic framework that once sustained that internationalism has radically changed. And I don't think that the American left or really maybe the left anywhere has figured out what to what to do after that after that moment. <laughs> no, I think that's right. Look, the 60s was a different historical moment, right? You know, it's on the heels of all these anti-colonial wars. There was much more of a sense of a global internationalist politics that was still there. So even liberals could kind of sort of get on that train, even if not wholesale, right? That doesn't exist today. But I also think whatever the real left is, which in this country is very small, let's be honest, they also do not know how to grapple with the problem of what they see as this religious threat, right? I mean, the left has always been deeply secular and has understood kind of religion and its forms of violence as particularly pernicious and irrational, right? So they have the same problem, which is, oh my, well, what are we going to do? Who are we going to identify with, right? Right. And I mean, it's interesting because you see this in the in Syria, how many people have realigned themselves with Assad because of the threat of ISIS. Like those shouldn't be our choices, right? But that fear of these Islamic movements, Islamist movements like ISIS, which of course is a horrifying movement, but is it more horrifying than Assad? Really? Um, but it is affectively. It's just really kind of too much. And I think that's true among liberals, and I think that's true for the left, which has always been really anti-religion. And again, I'm not defending this form of Islamist politics. That's not the point. But I think that paralysis around what do we do with that has really gotten in the way. And there are layers of historical irony and tragedy at work because the U.S. empire, of course, created this dynamic where the decolonial, postcolonial left was systematically undermined, massacred, destroyed and the rise of political Islam in certain parts of the world is related 
the Taliban have roots in the Soviet war in Afghanistan, funded by the CIA and Saudi Arabia, among others. You, and it's the same with Saddam Hussein. When he was fighting Iran, the French gave them the chemical weapons because Iran was seen as the more threatening problem. And again, I don't want to reduce these. First of all, not all Islamist movements are the same. They're not all Al-Qaeda or ISIS. They have different goals. I mean, these are complex movements with complex histories. But if that is the enemy, I think liberals and the left could agree they really are the enemy. They would agree on that. I don't think anybody could let go of that idea that they really are the enemy. And once that happens, then what ha- Then you kind of render invisible the rest of the populations or what is at stake or you don't see other possibilities that could emerge in these places if you weren't pummeling them into non-existence militarily. One thing we should really underline is that there's been all sorts of talk of mistakes or failures for well over a decade now, but there has never been anything close to any sort of real reckoning with the true monstrosity and criminality of the wars. And this is particularly notable with the war in Afghanistan, because there are, you know, there are plenty of people in the U.S. who today would say that the U.S. decision to invade Iraq was wrong, even if they'll really lean on mistake and failure language. But with Afghanistan, it's incredibly rare for people to question the initial decision to invade and overthrow the Taliban government, which is remarkable if you stop to think about it, because the war ended in just unambiguous defeat. And in fact, Biden, in defending the troop withdrawal against attacks from hawks, he had the gall to blame Afghans for giving up and cast America as having just for the last two decades been selflessly sacrificing its blood and treasure in Afghanistan civil war. Afghanistan's complicated, right? 9-11 set the terms. There's probably no nation state and certainly not an imperial one that would not respond with overwhelming military force to something like that. But it doesn't mean it's right. And there are all sorts of questions that have never been asked. Okay, Al-Qaeda had to be held to account, the leader, fine. But in fact, they didn't really get the leadership of Al-Qaeda when they went in. Did you have to hold the entire Afghan population hostage to this group, right, which was a stateless actor in the corner of a state? There is increasing evidence the Taliban may have been willing, if pushed long enough, to give them up. By November 20, 2001, the Taliban were ready to surrender. They wanted amnesty. At that point, Cheney and Bush had decided, no, they needed all-out victory. We keep going. Then it becomes nation-building. Then, it, you know, liberating women, nation-building, et cetera. The goalpost keeps moving. And 20 years later, the U.S. has to escape effectively in the middle of the night because they've lost the war and the Taliban has come back. Let's think the counterfactual. What if the U.S. had not spent 20 years destroying this country? Because despite what everybody says, we were not nation building. That, I mean, that regime was incredibly brutal. Nobody's disputing that. And incredibly unpopular. I mean, it doesn't mean it didn't have support, but it's not like, I mean, are we really so sure that there wouldn't have been some kind of opposition within that would have been able to take down this regime? Same thing in Iraq, right? But you don't give these countries that space. You don't give these populations the space to create political alternatives when you come in as this massive military imperial power and think that that you're actually going to solve a political problem through military destruction. 
It's not going to happen. So there has never been that kind of a reckoning. Yes, the U.S. was attacked. Yes, Al-Qaeda was based in Afghanistan. And nevertheless, what was the goal when the U.S. went in? How was it going to be achieved? Were there other options, right? What if it had been thought about as a, you know, as a criminal matter, not a war? Was there a kind of internationalist response that might have been possible? The point is nobody paused in that moment of anger and hyper-nationalist frenzy, the possibility of pausing to really try and to think through what does one do now? There was no space for that. And there's still no space for that. And, and here we are. And here, we, who cares about us? Here, Afghanistan is 20 years later. And then when it falls and then everything gets blocked, you block the funding so that children are starving. I mean, the whole thing is just unconscionable. One of the most reprehensible things that's happened under the Biden administration, which has received almost no attention. Because what was happening on the ground and the suffering of the Afghan population from this ongoing war has received very little attention in general. People know enough. There's enough out there if they wanted to pay attention, but it was never the focus. It was never the concern. It's not a matter of political and, for that matter, ethical significance in this country. What has happened to people? I think on a on a moral level, what's most fundamentally monstrous about this lack or really maybe inability to acknowledge the war on terror is the people who have suffered on the other end of American violence. But I do think that this fundamental inability to have any real reckoning with these wars has also had very serious political consequences for the U.S., which is also bad news for the rest of the world. Islamophobia, as a core facet of popular right-wing American politics, was perversely and, and, and surprisingly, I think, the historical product of neocons having initially framed the war on terror in these liberal universalist terms around liberating the Islamic world from, from, from despotism and, 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 and the brutal forms of patriarchy. But once that military mission begins to seem like it's failing, and that happens pretty quickly— the American response beginning in the mid-aughts was then to blame Muslims for failing to appreciate America's imperial generosity. It's just you see America, American politics beginning to be consumed with resentment. And reading your book, it occurred to me that similarly, maybe, the, the support our troops ideology has ricocheted back home as Blue Lives Matter in wake not only of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is obviously what it's a direct reaction to, but also in the wake of these military defeats, because Blue Lives Matter is premised on this notion that law-abiding civilians are are sheep, essentially, kept safe only by this thin blue line of cops, which also has this, this similar form of resentment towards all those civilians who don't respect police. And so I really see this, this two-decade-long process of, of maximal imperial expansion and then this ricocheting, resentment-filled inward turn. What do you see to be the domestic consequences of this American militarism reaching its outer limits, failing, and then when that failure can't be acknowledged, what happens then? So what difference does it make that there's been no reckoning? The most obvious might be war and terror didn't end with withdrawal from Afghanistan. And now it just ends up more and more and more buried because it's increasingly being fought by special ops troops or by 
military is trained by special ops troops or by drones, so the footprint gets lighter in some ways, although there are huge military bases and different things. And it recedes ever more from any public conversation as if the war is over. If one had had a real reckoning, one would have had to think quite broadly about what is the war on terror? What is its reach? Who are its victims? What are its consequences? Not just for US, the U.S., which, yes, there has not been another massive attack here, but in other places, the forms of violence have gotten worse and worse, right? So on the one hand, yes, the rhetoric of, you know, there are good Muslims and bad Muslims that emerges after 9-11, immediately after 9-11, that we're fighting the good Muslims and bad Muslims. Certainly that was the public, explicit position of Bush and the Bush administration and kind of certain kind of Republican public speech. But it is important to keep in mind that, you know, behind the scenes, you know, the Iraq war was also the brainchild of people like Douglas Faith and Paul Wolfowitz, whose own commitment as neoconservatives into American militarism was very much about Israel and shifting the, the political ground in the Middle East in order to protect Israel. And Iraq was always in their sights. And that world was deeply, fundamentally Islamophobic. You know, it's not about good Muslims and bad Muslims. So I think there was a, an explicit conversation and a behind-the-scenes sort of structure driving this, right? right? I mean, think about the discourse post-9-11. It's our way of life. They're trying to destroy our way of life. They're trying to destroy Judeo-Christian civilization. That language was there too, right? And one can see a thread from that to today, where that gets more and more articulated in relation, not to the U.S., the hour, but a subset of the U.S. that is the real America, right? Now, then again, there are all sorts of reasons for that, economic reasons, the wars, people's own experiences having gone off to war. So it's a complex convergence. But of course, there is fallout. Now, the other thing I would just add is the problem with no reckoning is not just that the war on terror can go on unimpeded, but the next war can, right? One war barely ended and there's saber rattling against China, right? One war barely ended and then Russia invades Ukraine. Again, do I think the Russian invasion was more than wrong? It's illegal. It's a war crime and the Ukrainian, you know, fighting against the Russian invasion occupation is completely legitimate. But it's allowed the U.S. to go back to being the exception, the moral leader of liberal democracy with zero reckoning of these 20 years of this brutal war that they lost, right? One of which they went into on an absolute lie. It was a war crime. And reconstitute itself and its own military, right? So it's not just that the U.S. is the moral leader, again, uniting the Western world against Russia. It's that unlike the Russian military, we don't fight that way, right? We're the, we're the moral military, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of set aside any possibility of questioning a kind of militarism that both has a kind of hagiography around the military and also that never questions a, a kind of belligerent militarism as the answer to political problems, right? And you know, after the war in Vietnam, there was a long reckoning. It took a long time to reconstruct a kind of belief in American militarism as the project that America has the right to intervene in the world, that that's its role. Eh, you know, three months pass, we're back, right? Ukraine just shows up, 
it kind of allows the conversation to move away from the loss in Afghanistan, which was beginning to bubble to the surface. What did it mean? For the entirety of American militarism, the war in Ukraine has served as some sort of absolution for the war on terror, but an absolution with no real reckoning. And then there are these remarkable stories about American vets disillusioned with having been occupiers in Iraq and Afghanistan who found this new sense of purpose as volunteers in Ukraine, describing it as almost therapeutic to be fighting against rather than as part of an unjust invasion. Right. To find the good fight that they didn't find. This is the good fight. That war we thought it was, but it wasn't. But this is the good fight. No, that's absolutely right. There's all sorts of ways in which it kind of launders and whitewashes this very complex history, which, again, puts the U.S. and quote-unquote American values on the right side of history now unequivocally. And, of course, it's a godsend for the military industries. I mean, oh my goodness. Yeah, and I think it puts the left into what I think I can just accurately describe as a deeply ambivalent position, because on the one hand, NATO played a massive role in causing this war in the first place. But on the other hand, the Russian invasion is absolutely illegal, illegitimate, uh, disgusting. This is another instance where you got to be able to hold two potentially contradictory things in your head at the same time, right? Yes, NATO is not innocent. The U.S. is not innocent in how this kind of fascistic imperial Russian politics emerges. But it's a fascistic imperial Russian politics that is unacceptable, right? You have to be able to hold those two things at the same time. The world is a complicated place. And so how do you navigate a politics through that? After 9-11, there was this really powerful idea of America, the innocent nation, victimized by, by terrorists. This victim identity premised on America's fundamental innocence, which thus validated the righteousness of the American government's militarist response. Was it that social, cultural, and political moment not relating to troops particularly, but to the United States as a whole, that laid the groundwork for traumatized troops becoming the medium for for popularly interpreting American imperial wars? And then perhaps further through today, is the general American unraveling that we're witnessing right now somehow tied up in this all? A generalized ideological crisis that can't be processed, that's stuck in this interminable feeling interregnum because of this popular commitment, maybe, to American innocence. And I'm thinking back in particular to right-wing TV and radio host Glenn Beck, who, who in 2009 created what he called the 912 Project. I don't know if you remember this. It was, quote, designed to bring us back to the place where we were on September 12th, 2001. The day after America was attacked, we were not obsessed with red states, blue states, or political parties. We were united as Americans, standing together to protect the greatest nation ever created. What's the role been of that powerful moment of collective political national affect? What's very interesting about 9-11, like the attack was like against innocence in, in both senses, right? People in the World Trade Center who were normal people going back their daily lives. The Pentagon's a little complicated because it's a military site. But, you know, I think the 
the iconic center of this, of course, was the World Trade Center. So the attack, as if it was out of the blue, there was nothing you couldn't, you could, you know, to even begin to talk about, well, why would Al-Qaeda do this was seen as sort of defending them rather than saying there's a historical context and political context for this. So the U.S. was certainly innocent. But I'm not sure it ever uh, appropriated or spoke in the language of victimhood in a certain way. First of all, you know, as this powerful imperial nation, the the U.S. doesn't think of itself as a victim nation. So it was innocent. It was unjustly attacked. But victim has a very particular nuance to it that I think is different. Now, what that has to do with the fracturing today, it's interesting, the Glenn Beck quote, because, you know, the divisions in U.S. society were deep. I mean, that was the Gore-Bush election. It was already so angry and deeply fracturing. And I think it's perhaps more true that, yes, September 12th, it gave the nation a reprieve, right? There was suddenly this cause that the population could unite behind despite all the divisions and acrimony heading towards this divide. And maybe what 9-11 and the wars that followed did was hold it together for a while. Nadia Abu-Hajj, thank you very much. Thank you for doing this. It's been a great conversation. Nadia Abu El Haj is a professor of anthropology at Barnard College in Columbia University, co director of the Center for Palestine Studies, and the author of Combat Trauma Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post 9 11 America. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, moving from its home, where it assumes respectable form, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what it really does that is you just telling other people about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.